Beautiful. Boom, fist pump, what? <clears throat> okay, everybody, my name is Roger Butts. I forgot to mention that before. If you don't know me. Uh, hi, everybody. Good morning. Um, I'm an associate here, and glad to be an associate here. Glad to come with you once a month or so and speak with you and um, share with you this sense of community, this sense of belonging, this sense of, of building something precious in this world at this time. So um, thank you for having me here while Ariana takes a much-needed break. And if you're new here, it get, it, she'll be back next week. Don't be alarmed. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm just, I'm being silly. Okay, so today's, um, today's uh, topic is spiritual uh, conversation as spiritual practice. And I'm going to preach in just a minute about that, speak in just a minute about that. But before I do that, I wanted to read something to you. And this is, this is an, uh, a reflection on a difficult period in my life, in my, in my, in my development, uh, I'm talking about today having courageous conversations, and I can't ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do, right? Um, and so I want to share with you this reflection that I wrote maybe two years ago, came out last year in this little book, and um, it's called Carl Scovel Saved My Life. Carl Scovel was the minister at King's Chapel in Boston, and... Um, one of the guys I look to for guidance and um, still do. He's still alive. Uh, so this is called Carl Scovel Saved My Life, and I'm just sharing it with you leading into my, into my lesson today. Carl Scovel Saved My Life. Well, more accurately, a single paragraph of 45 words written by Carl Scovel in a 400-page book, saved my life. I'll explain. In 2002, I was called to be the minister at the Unitarian Church in Davenport, Iowa. In Davenport, my wife, Marta, and I had three children. I had good friends. I knew successes. We started Progressive Action for the Common Good, a community organizing group. I worked closely with the local interfaith clergy on many issues, local and national. In Iowa, we went from symbolic acts of solidarity with LGBT community to legally binding same-sex weddings. While in Davenport, I also experienced difficulties around the art and science of being a senior minister. I was scattered. I engaged in struggles with people I imagined weren't on board with my vision and agenda. I was sensitive to criticism. I grew depressed. Things only got tougher at my second church in Colorado Springs. My shortcomings collided with a congregation that was not a good fit for me, as I was not a good fit for them. After 11 years of senior ministry, my time was over. After leaving parish ministry, I entered into a dark, difficult time. The dark night of the soul is nothing new. But when it's yours, it sure feels exhausting. 
I wavered between cynicism and despair. And all those books about learning to walk in the dark are right. You learn things in the dark that you'd never discover otherwise. My wife, my friends, fellow clergy were helpful. And one thing that enabled me to move forward was my faith. My strange, hybridy, Unitarian, Universalist, Unity, Christian faith. It faltered occasionally. It took hits. It bent in strong winds. It disappeared occasionally. It adjusted, adapted, found new avenues, made new inroads. That whole post-resignation time period was one big heartache. And it required all the resilience I could muster. In such times, you learn about what abides. The thing I returned to over and over was that single paragraph I had preached on many times over the years. A single paragraph from Carl Scovel's 1994 Barry Street essay, Beyond Spirituality. I discovered it in that huge volume put out by my UU Christian Fellowship. That essay was one of more than three dozen in that book. And that paragraph of 45 words was like a needle in a haystack. But I swear it was as if it was written in neon and flashing off the pages just for me. That paragraph saved my life in that time. I found it comforting. I found it challenging. I found it life-affirming. And it was the constant in the storm. It was lighthouse and life jacket. It showed me the path home. And this is the paragraph. And now you're going to laugh when you hear this paragraph, probably even the kids, because I've said it about a thousand times from this podium, pulpit, stage. What? Platform. Platform. The great surmise says simply this. At the heart of all creation lies a good intent, a purposeful goodness from which we come, by which we live our fullest, to which we shall at last return. And this is the supreme reality of our lives. If it was true of all creation that there was a good intent, a purposeful goodness through which we could live our fullest, most authentic lives. It was true of me too. I was part of the goodness. I was part of that supreme reality. Even if my identity as a senior minister of a tradition I loved was over. Something else was true even so. I could be that goodness. I could live out of that goodness and I could reimagine my life with that image seared into my soul. Sometime in the 1990s, somewhere in Washington, D.C., alternating between All Souls Church and Universalist National Memorial Church, I discovered that essay and along with it, my little UU Christian fellowship. When I needed one thing, anything, to help me survive the tidal wave of my lost identity, this paragraph came back to me, still fresh, still powerful, still life-giving, two decades later. I think Carl Scovel kind of saved my life, saved my ministry, allowed my faith to endure and to deepen, even in the hardest times. 
I am now a full-time staff chaplain at a hospital in Colorado Springs. And what guides me every day as I confront tragedy, tears, resilience, and hope is the idea that every person I encounter holds a goodness, a purposeful goodness at the very core of their being too. Ariana approached me some weeks ago and said, we are taking a break from our mystics and masters, the series we're doing this whole year, and we're moving towards five topics in anticipation of welcoming High Plains Church to share space with unity. I think more and more nonprofits and congregations are going to have to team up like this as the role of the church in our society continues to evolve In fact, I remember being at Wesley Seminary in Washington, D.C. all those years ago, 20 years ago now, and having to attend a number of services that were outside of my tradition. And um, one Friday evening, I decided to go out to Columbia, Maryland and visit a Jewish synagogue there. And the building was built specifically to be an interfaith house of worship. There was a Jewish synagogue There was a United Methodist Church, and there was a Unitarian Universalist congregation built for the very purpose of housing those different traditions. My kind of building. It is intriguing and energizing to me to think that unity might be going down a similar path. Now, Ariana suggested a few topics, and when she said, conversation as spiritual practice, I said, Count me in. That's, that's mine. Given my work as a hospital chaplain, I embrace today's theme. We who have been called to chaplaincy are frequent visitors to the sacred ground of holy conversation. Now you undoubtedly remember moments when conversation took you to a place of awe and wonder. Maybe you never described it as holy, but there was something deep and transcendent about that experience. Today, let's talk about conversation as spiritual practice. A spiritual practice is an ongoing, disciplined activity that one engages in to deepen one's connection with the self, with their community or communities, and their God. Connection being the key word here. The field that I am in, hospital chaplaincy, is all about building connection. We know that military and police departments and fire departments and hospices and hospitals have chaplains. And the reason hospital chaplains exist is because there is a deep and empirical relationship between physical, emotional, and spiritual health. I don't need to say that to unity, folks. Your whole tradition, the Fillmores, believed it from the very beginning. They saw it. They lived out of it. If your emotional and or spiritual health is devastated, your ability to physically heal is going to be impacted. And so hospitals invest in chaplains like me because they want to be about the work of whole person care. So every day, My colleagues and I walk into rooms 
patient rooms and go about the process of attempting to have courageous conversations that will enable, enable both of us to leave the encounter with a deeper understanding of ourselves and our situation. What's important to know is that when I enter into a room, I am not a blank slate. I bring all my stuff to that encounter. Now, I'm going to tell you about an encounter I had the other day with a rancher. I'll make up that he was on the cancer floor. His cowboy hat was sitting on the hospital tray where normally there would be food and a cup of water. I have zero relationship to the understanding of how ranchers work. How they know what to do with a rope or a cow or a horse or a tumbleweed or how to fix a fence. I can't keep my little 10-foot side yard free of weeds, but they know how to grow a cow. I did not say any of this, of course, not, not right away at least. The first thing I have to know, the first thing I have to know in an encounter like this, if I want to be in a conversation or a relationship, however long it might last, where am I going to feel discomfort in this encounter? What part, what part of my story is going to be triggered here? What might get in the way? Am I jealous? Am I feeling inadequate? I searched my database of memory and grief and triumph of my life story. When I, when I was a kid, did I want to be in Gunsmoke or Ponderosa? No, not exactly. Was I jealous? Not exactly. But there are times when I feel like I should know what a backhoe does. (laughs) And then I realize I don't even know what a backhoe is. (laughs) So I probably should get over it, right? (laughs) We are different people in different worlds. But I did make a note to back, you know, to Google backhoe later that evening. (laughs) I entered into the room. He turned out to be a verbal processor. He's worried about his health. He's missing his ranch. He's in exile from his home. He's far away. He wanted to tell me about how he mentors the next generation of ranchers in his small community out in eastern Colorado. I want to tell me about how his ranch has been in his family for a hundred years. It turns out that the ranching context was really an avenue for him to talk about the relational parts of his life. The way he sees himself as a teacher to younger people and a mentor. The same kind of relationship heartaches and headaches I hear when I talk to a teacher from the city or a retired military person. Here's the thing about conversations. It's important to know who I was and who I was not. I had to know in that encounter if I was going to get tripped up by something emotionally in some part of the unexamined dynamic in my own life story. 
Now, there's no way to know all of that beforehand. You just have to keep checking in with yourself. Issues are going to come up. This rancher, whose life was very different from mine, is worried that if he doesn't beat his cancer, he's going to leave his 20-something son behind, and he feels that the story is not complete between them. There are unresolved issues and things still to explore and teachings he wants to share with his son. He's confident that his son will be fine, but there's more that he wishes to do. And as he's talking, I'm not able to do the math precisely in my head, but I realized that he was about my father's age when he died and that his son was about the age I was when my dad died. That could have gotten messy real quick, right? You see how complicated that is? My own memories of my father's death and all that was left unsaid and undone could have disabled me in that moment from hearing this man's very legitimate concerns in 2018. I could have disengaged. I could have been overwhelmed with my own grief in the face of his grief. I could have assumed that I know um, about his grief or his son's grief in that moment because I lived through something similar. Empathy or staying connected, is on this continuum between merger, which says, I know exactly how you feel, I know exactly what you're going through, we are the same, not particularly helpful, and disengagement, this is too painful, I'm going to check out now, emotionally, physically disappear, pretend my pager went off, pretend like I have to go to the emergency room, right? Between those two poles, In the middle is empathy, staying there courageously to hear that man out. And in that moment, to the best of my ability, I validated his anticipatory grief, encouraged him to speak candidly with his son about his worries and his sadness and all of that. I let him drive the agenda and stayed connected to him. I did acknowledge the pain of this man's coming death, by sharing just a little bit of my own father's death at, the, at, at, at that time and the disorientation I felt and told him that my father's influence, even in his absence, never really left me. In this brief encounter, I only saw this rancher once. I see some components of a healthy conversation. First and foremost, two words that I want to gift to you that will help with any encounter with someone that is new to you. Now, you all know that we're having this conversation because High Plains Unitarian Universalist is going to come and share space with us, and you all are unity, and you live in your heart, and they're Unitarians, and they live in their heads, and somehow you're going to have to figure out how to play well together. So, two words. Curiosity and courage. Be curious. Stay curious. Really be invested in learning something new about the other. In conversation, a natural curiosity will take you a long way. First, it will keep your mouth closed. When your natural tendency is to talk, 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 if you're like me. Second, 
It will teach you. Curiosity is a great teacher to ask open-ended, non-judgmental questions from what in the world were you thinking and what is wrong with you to, would you like to tell me about that? Tell me more about that. What was that like for you? That's a good journey to take, by the way. Number two, be courageous. You'll be tempted to run away. You'll be tempted to emotionally disengage. If the subject matters gets into something unresolved in your own life, you'll experience discomfort. You'll feel inadequate. You feel like you messed up. You'll want to turn away from the pain or the grief or the sadness or the fear. You'll want to fix it. Now, at the 9 o'clock service, I directed the following statement to the gentleman in the congregation and told the women they could just, like, do their grocery list or whatever. But Connie said I was completely mistaken, that women do this too. So I'm going to have all of you listen to this next part. You'll want to fix it. Whatever the problem is, you'll want to fix it. Whatever the heartache is, you'll want to fix it. But I'm going to share with you the great chaplain mantra this morning. Don't just do something. Sit there. (laughs) Curiosity and courage will enable you to live into the great adventure of knowing yourself and being known by others. The temptation is to hide, is to evade. The source of perversion which keeps us from realizing the great good for which nature fits us can be put into a single word, evasion. You'll want to hide, but you are worth knowing. Even with your scabs, even with your scars, even with your open wounds, you are worth knowing. The vulnerability and the risk that it takes to know and be known is an act of faith. When we engage in creative interchange with one another, we activate the holy in the world. We embody God. We enflesh God. We enflesh the sacred. So stay engaged. Experience discomfort. That is a great gift. Speak your truth. Expect and accept non-closure. In that moment with that rancher, I could not make it better. I could not fix it. We had to just sit there with the non-closure that he was likely to die and his son was likely not to experience certain parts of his wisdom. This holy act of conversation is an invitation to encounter ourselves and others in deep and transcendent ways. Courage, curiosity. One last word. One final word that helps with the holy work of conversation. And that word is humility. One of the great gifts you can give yourself is to move away from the phrase, I understand, to the phrase, help me understand. Help me understand where you are. Help me understand what you see. Help me understand. It's good to remember that you don't know. That will help with curiosity, of course, but also with humility. So a final story. 
Early in his career, Billy Graham led a revival in South Carolina, in this small little town in South Carolina. Before the service began, he wanted to mail a letter. So he asked a child for directions to the post office. And after the boy had given him directions, Billy Graham said, Now if you come to Central Baptist Church tonight, I'll tell you how to get to heaven. The boy replied, No thanks, you don't even know how to get to the post office. When you encounter someone for the first time, just remember, in that person's world, I don't even know how to get to the post office. So I better keep my heart and my mind open and listen to the wisdom that they have that is far greater than mine. And in that encounter, I learned something about them. I learned something about myself. They learned something, and we are changed and renewed, and the holy is activated. May your conversations be holy and good. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.